My name is Rob. I'm a pastoral resident at the church. It's uh, good to be standing in front of you all again, in part because I'm in front of you, in part because I'm standing. I had a knee surgery and was off my feet for a few weeks, so I'm glad to be back. Uh, why don't uh, you guys just take a minute and pray with me for our service this morning, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, Lord God, uh, I just thank you for the day that you've given us to come together and to just be able to be encouraged by each other and worship your name uh, together as followers of you, Lord. Uh, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would fall upon this congregation this morning. Lord, we're here because we love you. We want to know you. We want to be encouraged and and feel close to you again. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would bless that desire. Uh, Lord, as we come together, that you would just uh, move in us and among us. Uh, Lord, that you would comfort, strengthen, encourage. Uh, Lord, whatever we are in need of this morning, that we would come before you and just place it at your feet uh, and find you to be uh, our provider. For this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you're not there already, you want to follow along and have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 16. We're going to be doing the whole chapter, and uh, this is a continuation of our series in Genesis uh, that we're calling Faith in the Fog. So, when we say faith, what are we talking about? I think faith can be summed up in various ways, but one would be uh, commitment to a belief. So not just the belief itself, but really the commitment to the belief. For example, some of you may know, I have a bit of a phobia of predatory aquatic animals. Anything under the water with teeth that might come after you and bite you is I'm kind of uncomfortable with. I think God made humanity. I think he made us very intelligent and resourceful. Uh, I don't think he made us to live underwater. He didn't give us gills or fins. And so I think we have certainly discovered how to like travel and do things underwater. But at the same time, there's just other creatures under, uh, in his creation that are better at it than us. Uh, and they've been doing it for a long time. And I just feel a little nervous sometimes. If we're talking alligators, piranha, pretty much anything with teeth. Uh, and so uh, this a uh, few months ago, my uh, sister last winter uh, went to Hawaii for a vacation and was just doing touristy things. That's, she's a tourist. She likes to do that. It's great. And uh, one of the things she did is she went on what's called a shark tour. Uh, which is very interesting, right? And a shark tour, it doesn't involve cages or anything like this. Basically, there's a guy, there's a speedboat, and there's a long rope, and there's a lot of tourists. And what you do is you get hooked into the long rope and towed behind the boat through the water uh, so that you can, through areas where there are sharks, so you can see all the sharks, and they'll even pour some chum into the water to get the sharks to kind of get a little bit more excited. And apparently, they know what they're doing. And it's safe and, and whatever, right? And so if you were to ask me, you know, if, if they got five-star reviews online, if there's like, you know, a safety guy there, a shark expert, whatever, and they're just like, no, we do this every day, it's fine. If you were to ask me if I believe them and that it, it, that it works, that people aren't like getting eaten every single day, then I would say, sure, I, yeah, I, I would guess that's the case, right? But if you were to ask me to have a commitment to that belief and be towed on the rope, I would be less sure. I would not be so confident to want to do what my sister did. Uh, and she was fine. Everyone was fine. There's no bad ending to the story. But, uh, and so that's a little bit of what we're talking about with faith in God, that it's not just a belief, but really a commitment to the belief that God is good, that, uh, that his promises are true, and that it is worth leaving everything to follow him. And so this sermon series is called Faith in the Fog because it's one thing to have that sort of faith or commitment to a belief for a day or even a year. But what does it look like to live a lifetime of committed trust to God's promises? 
How do you handle all of the highs and lows, the pain, the suffering, uh, when you expect things to be a certain way and then they change, when it's harder than you, you didn't realize what you were signing up for? And so in this, uh, in this part of the Bible in Genesis, we've been following this character, Abram, who uh, later renamed Abraham, and he's, God gave him this promise that he would make Abraham into, or Abram into a great nation. Uh, and that through him and through that nation, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. That God is going to help the world and work redemption in this world that has been cursed under the fall, that has been cursed with sin, that we uh, as people do what we know is not right, and that's not how we're made to be, that's not how we're made to live, and yet we can recognize there's something wrong, there's something flawed in us, right? And that curse, uh, God is going to work through Abram to redeem and, and, and undo that curse, is basically the promise there. Uh, and so Abram, uh, he, he trusts God, he has that faith, and so he leaves his homeland and follows God based on that promise. But as time is passing, and as he and his wife Sarai continue childless, uh, Abram's faith is bending, because God has promised him this son that's going to be the next line, the next generation uh, towards this great nation. Uh, but Abram's faith is bending as he's getting older, as his wife is getting older. And so as a reader, there's this tension or suspense that you have as you're going from story to story. And they're all right next to each other, but you see the passage of time is happening. And we're going to see that it's actually been 10 years since he entered Canaan that he's been waiting and he's getting older and Sarah is getting older. And so in today's passage, as that faith is bending and bending, we see it snap. And the, result, uh, the resulting fallout is really ugly. It's really a, it's an ugly situation. It's 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 broken. It's bad. It's sinful. And uh, but in the midst of this broken situation, God reveals Himself in such a way that it becomes clear that instead of it being silly for Abram to tr- uh, to trust God as he was starting to wonder about as he's getting older, it's going to become clear that it was actually silly for Abram to ever doubt God in the first place. And so today, as Christians we constantly face the tension of deciding whether do I trust God or do I doubt God? Do I, do I believe God's promises and live based off of those or do I disbelieve them in some way? And as I know many of you to be passionate followers of Jesus, I know that you're committed to following and trusting God's promises. But even as a passionate follower of, of Jesus, we still know what it is to doubt his promises. Amen? That different areas of our lives, whatever it is that I find myself living based off of a disbelief. I might say I believe in God, but really, as you look at my life, as you look at how I'm living, I'm not committed to that belief, but rather I'm practicing a disbelief of that promise of God in that area. How will I steward my finances? How will I spend my time? Where will I find contentment? How will I manage this pain or stress or anger or loneliness? And so some questions that arise from this are really, how do we as followers of God find the faith to build a lifetime of committed trust in God? and in his promises. How do we do it not just for a day, not just for a year, but for a lifetime, even in the fog, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard? And what even makes a lifetime of steadfast faith worth fighting for? What, what would be so bad if, if I just went through life with mediocre faith and didn't walk this harder road of walking by faith? So these are some, uh, and the key there, I think, is, is in part to, for us to begin to see that it's not actually silly to trust God, but it's actually silly to doubt him in the first place. And so these are some questions that this text is going to speak to. And the big idea we're going to see this morning is that God knows your weakness, he sees your pain, and he is always working to strengthen and establish you in faith. And that when we come back to him after our lapse in faith, after our lapse in judgment, that we see, man, it was actually silly of me to doubt God at all. 
because he's still real, he's still good, and he's, he's still faithful, and he's never changing. Amen? So with that, we're going to jump into our first point. If you want to follow along, we're in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, and this first point is about the fragility of our faith, and that is that our faith as, as people, as human beings, who are uh, sinful, who are broken by sin, right, under the curse of sin, faith does not come naturally to us. And when we do find faith, it's fragile, it's easily damaged, right? It can fade quickly, or, or one event can throw it off and disrupt it. And so uh, there's this, uh, we're going to see, I'm going to read this point, the, the text related to this point, but we're going to see that there's a lot of brokenness in this point. So I just want to warn you that it's just, it's a really hard situation that we're going to see that comes out of Abram and Sarai's lapse of faith. But God is going to work to, to bring it about for good in the long run. So verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So first off right here, notice that that last thing she says, Now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now she's, on one hand, you can say, well, she's recognizing God's sovereignty. But on the other hand, she's interpreting this as God sort of being against her. That God has very clearly made a promise to Abraham or to Abram that he is going to give him a son and that through that son he's going to make a great nation. Right? But, but Sarah is, is interpreting this as, man, time is going on. It's been 10 years since we've been in Canaan. We're both getting older, right? And, there's, and again, no son. So what, what is going to change? And so she decides she's going to, to want to take matters into her own hands and, and walk the path of disbelief rather than the path of faith. And, and this should not come as a surprise to us uh, if we think about how long they were there and how old they're getting, that's actually a pretty natural way that we think. Maybe it wouldn't be the same for us in the exact same situation, but how many ways do you have in your life where God makes a promise, and yet as time goes on or as circumstances get changed and it gets harder to see that promise is true, how, how often does our faith start to bend, right, and, and, and kind of flex under the weight of the circumstances and perhaps even eventually break or snap? Right, where we will come to, to doubt God in those ways. It's natural for us as broken people to live by sight and not by faith, right? To just go based off of what we can manipulate in the world around us. Right. And so uh, the text continues as Sarah decides to walk this path of disbelief. She says to Abram, Go to my servant, and maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Notice how it keeps using this language of Abram is her husband and she is the wife of Abram. And so it's really emphasizing the brokenness of what's happening here, that the covenant of their marriage is being violated because of their lack of faith in God. Uh, not to mention what, it, what even the implications and meaning is for Hagar, her servant. And so verse 4, it says, And he went into Hagar and she conceived, and so she is pregnant. So notice here, uh, Sarah says, that she's going to obtain children by her, by Hagar. And so Sarah, again, is looking at not what God can do in his faithfulness to his promises, but rather how she, in her power or through the means available to her, can manipulate the situation to try to bring about the desired result that she has, right? that she wants. Uh, and, and to be a little bit fair to Sarah, I'm sure she's facing all sorts of cultural pressure of, are we gonna, am I going to be able to prepare, provide a son for my husband or these sorts of things? But none of that excuses uh, the deep brokenness of this lack of faith. Uh, and notice also that Abram goes along right with it, right? He doesn't, he, he, he's passive, he doesn't try to correct or anything. And so it's pretty clear that Abram is also 
uh, lacking faith in this in this story as well, right? And so Abram and Sarah are kind of both in this together. And in a little bit, it echoes the story of Adam and Eve in the fall, right? Where Adam does not correct Eve or try to help her come back to faith in God because he's actually in the exact same boat as she is with his doubt. Uh, and so, again, it's a, it's a cultural practice, though, for in this, in this time for a wealthy man in the event of barrenness to take one or more concubines and obtain a son, and that doesn't mean that that's right. It's absolutely wrong. But what's happening is Abram and Sarah are doing something that isn't unheard of for them in their culture, but rather something that is against the path that God has directed them to walk, the path of faith, the path of the promised son, the promise that they're going to trust God to provide within their covenant of marriage, and they're saying, no, we're going to just break that like everyone else around us does in a, in a situation like this. And so that's their doubt. Uh, rather than rising above the culture and, and trusting in God's promise. And so the text continues, And when she saw that she had conceived, this is Hagar, she looked with contempt on her mistress, being Sarai. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. There's a little irony in here, because Sarai suggested this in the first place. But see what she says. She says, I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to, you, do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, Hagar, and she fled from her. So Hagar fled from Sarai. So there's a lot here. First, what is this look of contempt that Hagar gives Sarai? Well, the, the context seemed to suggest the obvious... Uh, which is the reality that what, what's happening for Hagar, again, in the culture, in other households, is really an elevation of status for Hagar. That she's going from a personal servant to Sarai, which again was very common at the time of how households would be set up for a wealthy person that Abram was becoming under God. Still very broken, right? But what would happen is that she could be elevated to the status of a wife or a, sort of a second wife. Uh, which would be an elevation of her status from that slave. And so when that happens, and also when Hagar sees that she is, indeed, that she's bearing a child, that she's going to give Abram possibly a son, she, the way that she looks at Sarai, it says contempt. And the, the suggestion in, in the Hebrews that it's a lowering of uh, opinion and status, that she's seeing Sarai not as a superior, but maybe as an equal, or, or probably even more so as an inferior, that Hagar is doing for Abram what Sarai could not. Uh, and so what, what's happening here is the beginning of a rivalry that's going to continue into Genesis, and that's probably going to continue, we could even say, for generations after this, as we look at the lines of Isaac, who's the promised son who's going to come later, and Ishmael, the son of Hagar, who's going to come, and the nations that come from them, and you read into First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, etc., and just see the nations that are coming against Israel. A lot of those nations come from Ishmael as well. So... Uh, there's this rivalry that's starting here. Uh, and then, secondly, we see Sarai sees Abram as culpable. And so she's, she's recognizing that Abram went along with this and didn't, didn't do anything to stop it. And now she's feeling slighted, demeaned, pushed out of her marriage covenant with Abram. And so certainly it seems that Abram's complicit and partly to blame for what's going on here. Uh, next, we see that rather than supporting Sarah, Abram deflects again and leaves the situation to her. Rather than supporting Sarai and trying to help fix the situation or to make it right however he possibly could or, or help make it better, he instead says, deal with it. It's all, it's all up to you. you. She's your servant. You get to do what you want with her. And he turns Hagar over to the wrath of Sarai, who then begins to treat her very harshly and mistreat her. It doesn't give us any details, but we know 
it must be bad because it's bad enough for Hagar to flee from the household of Abram into the wilderness. Now note, uh, at this time, it's not like Abram is like living in a city, part of a big community. Like, no, they're out there on their own, right? And so for Hagar to run away means that she is facing very possible death in the elements of the wilderness on her own, whatever she might come across. Is she able to provide for herself as she's also pregnant? Uh, it's a very uncertain situation. Probably her plan is to, based on where it says she flees, is that she's probably looking to find and make her way back to Egypt. But even if she's able to make that long and perilous journey, what would she find back in Egypt where she was probably initially taken as a slave from Abram and Sarai's time in Egypt, right? So Hagar is facing no certain future at this point. And I know this is a lot of explaining, but we're going to get to the point here, right? Hagar is facing no certain future as she is looking at either maybe death or a life of a low status of slavery, certainly lower than what she initially had in Abram's household as a servant directly to Sarai, right? So it's a big demotion, so to speak. Um, and so why share all this, right? This is this, this ugly uh, situation. It's embarrassing for the protagonist of the story, which is Abram and Sarai. Why would, why would the author of Genesis go into such detail about such a horrible story, Right? And there's a few reasons that we're going to see here, but the first one I want to point out is that I think what the author is doing is highlighting this lapse of faith and what comes of it. And what comes of it is the fallout of disbelief. What happens when we make this commitment to follow God and, and we, we have this commitment to trusting in his promises, but when times get hard and our faith bends and flexes under the pressure and eventually breaks, what happens as a result of us walking instead the path of disbelief? And the answer is, it's always going to be worse. It's always going to be worse than if we trust God and follow him. That there's fallout of disbelief. In this case, it's an especially broken situation, and it leads to all kinds of trouble for the family, even we're going to see in later chapters, as well as just the current badness of the situation as well. Uh, But the idea here is that it's not just restricted to that situation. Any situation where we try to take matters into our own hands and, and live on our own way in disbelief, not following God is always going to be worse off for us than if we trust God's promises. Faith in God's promises leads to global redemption. God, remember, God is here working in Abram's life to, be this, to bring about a blessing to the whole world that's eventually going to lift this curse and redeem creation to what it's meant to be. Right? And Abram is deciding, instead of doing what you're calling me to that's going to have this guaranteed end, I think I need to go this other way. Whenever we do that, whenever we go the other way, whatever that looks like for you in your life, the temptations you face to walk a path of disbelief, of not trusting in God and following the life he calls us to, whenever we walk that path of disbelief, we're instead, uh, we're, not leading to, we're not walking the path that leads to global redemption. We're instead uh, doing this. We're disbelief, in God promises, disbelief in God's promises leads to global decay and into a further realization of our fallen state. So the world actually becomes worse. When we don't follow God, we make the world worse. And part of how we make the world worse is because if you're following God, then you're part of his plan for the redemption of the world in some way, in some form, in some fashion. We don't, as people can't ever fully see the big picture, but that much is clear that God has included us in his plan for the redemption of the world if we're going to follow him. We're part of the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus to the world. But if we're not going to be that, then now there's all sorts of implications that we as Christians are living maybe stagnant lives. Maybe we're not living in the way that Christ is. And so people see us as Christians, but they don't see Christ. Or maybe, uh, our, like in the story, our, our actions actually hurt other people. 
whatever that whatever that disbelief might be, or maybe it's just that it puts us in a worse position to actually help the people around us. Right? That there's things that we could be doing to help others. Uh, perhaps there's someone in your life that God has been grooming through the circumstances in their life to receive the gospel message, the message of hope. But we, through through our doubt and our fear, and I'm speaking to myself here too, for the record look at the opportunities he gives us to love and be a light to people in our lives, and we say, I don't think I can do it today, then what is that doing? That is, that again, that's, there's going to be fallout from that. There's going to be, uh, we're going to be further away from the redeemed creation that God is leading us towards. And so that's, that's what's happening here, right? Is Abram is, is actually doing something that is counterproductive to God's plan, and yet we're going to see later God is actually going to still work through it because he's sovereign and because he's good to still bring about Good. In other words, we can't ultimately ruin uh, God's plan for redemption. That he is still, even in our failures, going to work. And so before we move on, I just want to leave us with this question to reflect here, and that is, uh, what hope is there to help our fragile faith, right? Like, we recognize that our faith is fragile. It's broken. Can Can we admit that this morning? That it's hard for us to trust in God, to embrace a lifetime of trusting in his promises? And so I want you to reflect on what would it look like for you to have a life that would have stronger and stronger and stronger faith? Where could we find that hope? I want us to be looking for that and thinking about that as we move on in this passage. So point number two, uh, point number one is the fragility of our faith. Point number two, the power behind God's promises. So the fundamental question behind our struggle to trust God is simply, is he trustworthy? Right? What is, the, what is the question that you face when you're at that fork in the road? Am I going to follow God, the promises that he's uh, and trusting in the promises he's made, the life he's called me to, or am I going to, to trust in myself or something else to go my own way? And the question is, is God trustworthy? Right? Is, can I trust God with my finances? Can I trust him to satisfy this gaping hole in my heart or whatever else it might be? So verse 7, it says, the angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? So Hagar, she's fled. She's been treated harshly by Sarai. She flees into the wilderness. She's got no certain future, possible death, right? Uh, and she's not taking the path of faith. Now, again, I don't think the expectations weigh as heavily on Hagar because she hasn't had these theophanies or appearances of God that Abram has had, right? Abram has God come and speak to him in in whatever capacity such that he follows him from his homeland. And God even comes and speaks to him again and makes a covenant with him in last week's passage, right? Hagar hasn't had those. She's been part of the household of faith. Maybe she's gotten some some of the information through the grapevine, but she hasn't had those same experiences of God. So I'm not putting that same burden of expectation on her, but simply by being a person in this world, She's not walking a path that is reliant on faith in God. Instead, she's trying to find her own means to fix and, and help her situation. Uh, but see what God does. It says the angel of the Lord comes and finds her. And I just don't want to gloss over how amazing this is. So the angel of the Lord uh, is used at various points in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's undeniable that this is God. And this is one of those cases that God is speaking here because this even results in a a name of God and a dedication of a well to God from her conversation with this angel of the Lord. And so at some points, the angel of the Lord definitely seems to have a divine nature. uh, And then at other points, it seems like that's maybe not the case. And so it's a little bit ambiguous how we understand 
who the angel of the Lord is. Is it consistent or constant in the Old Testament? It's a little bit hard to say. However, it's still always a glorious thing, right? Whenever God comes and speaks to us in whatever capacity, it is a glorious thing. It doesn't say exactly how he appears to her. Uh, it doesn't say, it doesn't even necessarily mention that she's afraid, uh, as, as it does in maybe in, in other cases where an angel comes and appears to someone. Uh, however, we know that it's always a wonderful, amazing, wondrous thing when God appears to someone in this. And we're going to see that because of the life change that Hagar goes through and because of how her direction and her trajectory changes as a result of this experience. Uh, but how amazing is it that the first mention of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is to not Abram, God's chosen you know, patriarch of this, uh, of this nation that's going to be this person through whom God is going to bless all of the nations of the world, but rather that it's to the servant of his wife, Hagar, somebody who would be completely forgotten, completely overlooked in that society, right? Or, or in whatever societies they would come across. Because it's like, I always think of Genesis as like, it's the same as like a post-apocalyptic movie where you're just like kind of going from town to town and there's like nobody there. That's kind of how I imagine the world now, because like, there's not a lot of people, right? And so it's just kind of Abram out there, and then maybe they'll find people in Egypt or whatever. But anyway, so in, in, in the, that world, though, right, that Hagar would not be somebody of any sort of status at all, right? And yet God would notice her. God would come to her in her plight, the God of the universe. Like, that is amazing. That is so cool. And, and notice also before that Hagar, because of Sarai's and, and Abram's doubt, in God's promise, Hagar gets, in a way, sort of elevated to Sarai's status within Abram's household, from just servant to a second wife, which, again, very broken situation, and yet still, in that culture, an elevation of her status. But how much more, when God comes to her now, is she elevated as somebody who God has appeared to? And we've seen that in very few cases uh, at, up to this point in the chapter. So he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? And so, uh, this, this angel addresses her gently and familiar, familiarly, in a familiar way, confirming her, her desperate status and plight. It's kind of like a coming to her and saying, like, what's wrong? And he's God. He knows what's wrong. And yet he's coming to her to confirm that um, and, and basically to offer help. And so before we move on, though, I want us to note, though, because we see all of a sudden God showing up here, in the midst of a story that all of this story and situation arose because Abram and Sarah had gone for so long without seeing God and were beginning to doubt his promises. And now all of a sudden God is showing up, but not even to them, but to someone who is hurt through their doubt and through their disbelief. Uh, and so he's showing up to them, and, but now we have this, this appearance of God, and because God is showing up, it's this reminder that this is God who's making these promises. So when we talk about faith, we're not, going, we're not talking about faith in a football team or faith in a political leader. We're talking about faith in God. If there's anyone trustworthy, it's God. And if there's anyone who's able to actually make a change or a difference in your life to help you with something you're dealing with, it's God. There's power behind that name. There's power in, in the name of Christ and in God and who he is and what he can do for us. And that power can help us. And so I want, I want us to remember that there's power behind these promises. They come from God. And so you could think, perhaps, where have you seen in your life evidence of God's power or in the world around you? Right? What, what, have, what has happened to you that you could remember as we think about the struggle we face to follow God's promises uh, and to trust in them? How could we think about it? God intervening in a fallen world, uh, maybe it's through 
recognizing his, his power through creation. Maybe it's miracles that we've seen or heard of him doing. Maybe it's just the change we see in people and ourselves or otherwise, or just ways that he has provided for us over the scope of our lives. How, uh, how, where do you see evidence of God's power in your life? And so moving on, it says, uh, Hagar said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai, she responds to the angel. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The last thing that Hagar would want to do right now. Verse 10, the angel said, the angel of the Lord said to her, kind of to answer the question why, he said, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered in multitude. Now here is a, a huge statement. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. What does that, what does that sound like? Who, what other person does it sound like that he said that to? Abram, right? That's the promise. That's what this whole part of the Bible is about, is this promise God has made to Abram. And yet here he is making a very, very similar promise to Hagar. Who is Hagar? She was the servant of, of Sarai, right? There, she was of kind of no account at the time. Then she gets elevated to the status of second wife, and now God is actually coming and elevating her to a status that's even closer to Abram. Abram is going to be the father of nations, the father of a nation that is going to bless the world. But now Hagar is going to be the mother of a nation. He says, I'm going to multiply your offspring so they will be manifold, without number. And that's incredible. And so we'll see, it says more after that. But even in this, he's promising Hagar a future with a family beyond numbering, this elevation of her status. Uh, And so this would be initially a compelling reason for her to return if this future is true, because it means that things are going to get better for her rather than going to Egypt and having no status. And so the point there is that your suffering is not lost on God. And this is a point that we're going to keep hitting from here on in the sermon is that God, he sees, he hears our suffering, right? It's not lost on him. And he saw and heard Hagar's suffering and her affliction, her cries, and he came to her and comforted her and elevated her status and helped her uh, to give her a future, to give her a hope. Uh, and so he is listening. He might, even, he might uh, show up when we need him the most. Uh, and so we could reflect here and just think, where have we experienced God's comfort? And so uh, the text moves on in verse 11, and there's further prophecy about uh, what's going to happen with Hagar. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, or look, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, or God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So that's the easy part of the prophecy, now the uneasy part. Verse 12, he says, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, which could maybe be interpreted in different ways, but none of them seem great. None of them also seem like the worst. It's kind of like this odd middle choice. Like if you're going to pick an animal, that he's going to be a wild donkey. Like there's some implications there maybe. Uh, and so, but the fact that the angel is prophesying this for Hagar's son is also a little bit uneasy for her too because of, out of all the things he could have said, like this is what he said, right? Like you could think of something that you've done in your life and then think if somebody like prophesies that to your unborn child, like this is what they're going to be. It's like, would that is that really what I want to hear though? Like, you know, if if an angel comes to me and says your your child is going to go on shark tours and hang on a rope behind speedboats while Chum is dumped in the water, I'd be like, why is that like what you're saying? Like that's kind of scary to me. And so it just seems kind of out of the blue. He shall be a wild. 
donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So first we started with this positive promise, you're going to have this nation come from you through your, your children. And then it says, you're going to have this son, and this is the kind of guy he's going to be. Uh, and, and even before that, it says, you know, his name's going to be God hears. And it's like, all right, that's really nice. But then we get to this, and it kind of seems like it takes this turn. And I just, wanna, I just want us to maybe consider how Hagar might be hearing this as she is alone in the wilderness, as she feels powerless, as she feels anger, probably hatred towards uh, Sarai and, and maybe even Abram as well, right? How does, what does her life, what does her future look like? And what God has done is he's come to her and he's given her a future. And he says, look, like not everyone in your family is going to be perfect. But what we can understand this is that Ishmael, this wild donkey, is mostly associated with wilderness living. The idea kind of, it seems in the commentaries, to be that he's going to live out in the desert, in the wilderness. And we see that that actually comes true for Ishmael. Uh, and then it says, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him suggests that there's going to be conflict and violence down the line. But at the same time, it's also suggesting that Ishmael and the nation that comes from him is going to be strong and independent, right? And so, he, yeah, he's not going to get along with, with neighboring nations. He's going to fight with them, and yet he's always going to be there. He's going to be like this wild, untamable donkey. I don't, I don't know much about donkeys, I'm sorry. But that he's just, you know, going to be there or whatever, right? And so uh, that's going to keep going. And then it says, finally, he shall dwell over against his kinsmen, that he's going to continue to endure. Uh, and, and that seems to have been the case for the nations that have come uh, from Ishmael as well. And so... Very interesting prophecy, not all good, not all bad, um, kind of in the middle. But at the same time, for Hagar, it would, it, what it means is it's the future. It's an elevation of her status and that she would be, go from being a forgotten slave or servant to the mother of a nation. And so we could, again, just track Hagar's status. She goes from low to higher elevated to sort of second wife to this household of Abram to far lower kind of out in the wilderness with no future, it seems, then God comes to her and brings her up to far higher, right? Perhaps even closer to Abram's level as you think about being um, the, the mother or father over nations. And so before she had no reason to return to Sarai and trust her, there was no future for her there, but now she chooses to trust God and return with faith in his promises that she and her son will have a future blessing. And so because of what has happened for Hagar at this point, she decides there is actually she decides to trust God, and it's very similar to, to Abram leaving his homeland to follow God and His promise. She says, "I'm going to go back and 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 have this child and and stay with the household of Abram because of this promise that God has made for me." And so she actually Hagar, the unlikely person in the story, is the one who is walking the path of faith and not God's chosen person, Abram. And so notice God's power and his presence revealed to Hagar makes him trustworthy in her eyes. This experience that she has, of course I could trust this God who just showed up in the desert. Whatever it is that she saw, whatever that interaction was like, it was enough for her to go from dead set on leaving Abram's household to, I'm actually going to go back. And I'm going I'm to go there because I know that this God is going to give me a future. And so I think uh, the concluding point here is God won't promise you that you won't face pain and struggles in this life, but he promises that if you follow him, he will bless you with a future with him that will surpass any other path 
you will follow. It's very similar, our experience as Christians to Hagar's is having been lost out in the wilderness alone, without hope, without a future, but we encounter God, and through him we can have a future uh, through what he makes for us. And so that brings us to our final point, uh, which is how do we find the spiritual strength and stamina then to live out a lifetime of commitment to trust in God's promises? So our final point is about the God who sees my affliction and how that can help us. Verse 13, so it says, So she, Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So she doesn't say, You are a God who saw me this one time and will not necessarily ever see me again. She doesn't say, He looked after me this one time, but maybe not later. No, she says, You are a God of seeing. She says, I have seen him who looks after me. So verse 14, Therefore the well was called... Be'er Lahai Roi, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, who Hagar bore, Ishmael, presumably because Hagar told him about the encounter and experience. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So Be'er Lahai Roi means uh, the God who uh, the God who sees me, the God who looks after me, and so. For anyone who didn't have the experience Hagar just did, they would have to ask, why would she return? But for Hagar, she had just met a glorious God who changed her life, right? So imagine Sarai and Abram's surprise when she comes back and tells them about this encounter. And imagine perhaps the conviction they would feel that this is not something that Hagar could just make up. And why would she even be coming back? Imagine their conviction they would feel when they realized that their God appeared not to them, but to Hagar, and that he made promises or reiterated promises not to them, but to Hagar, who was the victim of their lack of faith. Uh, And so Hagar has just experienced the God of seeing, and it says also through the naming of Ishmael, the implication God hears, that God heard her. Uh, It said he listened to her affliction. And so she names this well after him for future generations as this monument of commemoration. Not that God saw me this one time, but rather that God is a God of seeing, that he sees us, that he hears our affliction. Uh, And that monument, God revealed to all future Israel and to all future readers of this story, that he is a God who sees and hears the affliction of his people. And he did all of that through the person of Hagar. That through her faith and response to God, that what happened is that There was a blessing and a help and an encouragement to all future generations as Israel was going to go and face slavery in Egypt, that they were going to be able to look back and see this this commemoration of the sort of God that they serve. He is a God who sees and hears their affliction. Uh, As they face constant trials in their faith and failure after failure, he is a God who sees them and extends also to the people of God today, us, right? On the path of what we could call global redemption, that is the church. We are part of God's plan to redeem the world, to lift the curse, right? That this promised land of heaven, this path that we're on, that we're facing persecution, that we face doubt, that we face suffering, we face constant trials of faith uh, and, and failure after failure, right? Where our faith bends and bends until it breaks, until it snaps, that this is a commemoration that our God is a God who sees and hears our affliction, that he's with us, that our pain is not lost on him. And so that gets us to the power of belief, which is that if God is working through your failures, if God continues to work, even in the things that we, when we mess up, that he is still working to reestablish us and to strengthen us in him, imagine how he works through faith. Amen? 
imagine how God would work through our faith. And there's story after story in Scripture of God working through faith. When people have faith, that God uses them and works through them to bless the community around them, to bless future generations, to bless the world through them. Think about the story of David and Goliath where Israel is cowering before this champion of the Philistines and David steps up in faith, not because there's anything about himself to rely on, steps up in faith and through God moving through him, beats Goliath and routs the enemy and all of Israel is saved and encouraged to follow their God and to trust in him. And, and to uh, have him deliver them from any trial they face. Imagine the story of the exiles in Babylon, where uh, the, the Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are facing uh, this uh, trial in a fiery furnace if they don't bow down and worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And everyone else is doing it, Hebrews and non-Hebrews alike. And yet they say, no, we're not going to do it. And their faith leads to this miracle where they're preserved through the fire of the furnace and God even shows up or an angel or someone to be with them and preserve them and protect them and then to to demonstrate both to Nebuchadnezzar and all of the nation of Babylon that these Hebrews in exile have a God who is real and who can protect them and who is at work to redeem the world and at work to redeem his people. And, and how encouraged that all of the other Hebrews would have been when they were now able to actually worship God freely because of the faith that they had. And imagine the faith of Esther, who in a very similar situation had a faith and, and a boldness and a courage that led to the salvation of her people. Uh, and then we could also think about just the millions of Christians and stories that we have no time to go into, uh, but through all of the people who had faith, that that faith has been passed down through generations and communicated to Christian after Christian after Christian that the gospel would spread through the world and even make it here to this room today, where we are gathered because the faith through someone or another who had faith, it came to us. Amen? God moves through faith uh, and through spreading the gospel. And so as we close, I just want to invite the band. You can start to come back up here, and we're in a minute here going to take communion. And uh, basically what communion is and how it relates to this story is as profound as Hagar's experience was, her experience of God, it merely foreshadows a far greater monument of commemoration of the God who sees and listens to our pain. That God sees and he listens and he also answers, and God sent his ultimate answer to generations of affliction in this world in the person of his son, Jesus, who came and suffered for you. That his body was broken for you, his blood was shed for you, as he died for your wrongs to give you a future as he found you out in wherever you were in the wilderness in your life and promised you a future in him, if you would come to him, if you would submit to him and walk the path of faith with him. And so in a moment, if you've committed your life to faith in Christ, that table is open for you up here. And uh, we can remember what he's done for us through the cracker symbolizing his body broken for us and the, the juice, his blood shed for us. And if, you're, if you haven't made that commitment, if you're not a Christian, then no need for you to go through the motions. I want to encourage you to just sit this one out and you can just reflect uh, this morning and think about what God might be saying to you. There's no judgment here. But if you guys would, bow your heads with me and pray and, and we'll transition into that time. Maybe this gospel message is finding some of you in the wilderness. Maybe it's at the end of your rope. And whether for the first time or the first time in a long time, this is God's voice calling out to you, saying, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm for you. Come to me and I will give you life. 
I have a room in my Father's house for you. Trust in me, follow me by faith, and I will get you there. The path to redemption is found by faith in Jesus. And though our faith is fragile, though it bends and breaks, he is always showing you that he is trustworthy. And he's inviting you to come back to him and embrace a lifetime of faith in him. And so, Lord, I just pray over this church right now, God, that you would come, Holy Spirit, that you would descend and be in us and among us. And, Lord, that you would move uh, and just stir our hearts, stir the, the coals, the embers in our souls to faith, God, to trust in you, to know that you are worthwhile, to follow you, to know that you are a God who honors his promises and who is trustworthy and that we would find in you the strength to live a lifetime of faith in you. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.